Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analysts Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zimmerman. Guys, good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. Chris. So happy to be here. (laughs) Coming up, we'll talk with economist Simon Johnson about the problems in Europe, and no, they don't involve snow. We'll take a look at Google's high fiber, Coke against Pepsi, and we'll give you an inside look at a few of the stocks that are on our radar. But we begin with the snow. The blizzard of 2010 brought record snowfall to the D.C. area, and a big chunk of the U.S. got hit with snow, including Dallas, for crying out loud. Guys, let's just go around the horn here. Shannon, we'll start with you. What What is your headline for Snowmageddon? Well, can I ask a question first? Si- Simon Johnson, he's going to be on the show? Yeah. Oh, suddenly I feel much more important than I did just <laughs> moments ago. That guy's good. He is good. Uh, so my take is that the snow apocalypse uh, was good news for the neighborhood kid economy. So you know we had uh, some some kids in our neighborhood coming by to shovel snow, and uh, they were quite upfront about the price. It will be this much, and I will do this. And no, I will not do the back because no one can get back there anyway. And uh, we hired uh, a couple of them, and they did a fine job. So I think the neighborhood kid Lazy. economy is going to support us Lazy. into the next All quarter. Right. You know, the kids in my neighborhood are sneaky. They say, "Can we shovel your your walkway for free?" And then, you know, by your own guilt, you're going to give them something. But I actually declined. I'm, I love snow, though, so I'm happy. I almost actually did some winter camping in my backyard last night. I'm kind of an outdoorsy type, but wait, 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 you can build winter, our, yeah, you just, can build just, like just for my yard. I was worried the neighbors would think it was another domestic dispute, so I, so I didn't. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's pretty fun. So you set up a, a tent in your backyard? I, and I just actually slept didn't set up. The, the I, put the, I padded the snow down. Yeah, and I, I was ready to do it, like as training for, oh, for my alpine ice cave. You know, missions. <laughs> good times, good times. Seth, Jason, your headline for the week? Oh, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I I have bruises on me from, from shuffling. I'm from Minnesota, and so I consider it kind of a personal affront if there's any snow on my driveways or sidewalks within, you know, a day or two of this stuff happening. And it, it just kept coming. I just kept shoveling. My shovel broke. You couldn't buy a new one. My other shovel broke. I ended up putting uh, steel plates that I had left over in the garage on my shovel. And uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. All right, let's, let's try and bring it back to actual business and investing. Are there companies that actually Hernia benefit? surgeons <laughs> are going to do Are there companies business? that benefit from this type of winter emergency condition? Home well, Depot, Lowe's, are they selling more stuff throughout yeah, the year? They're selling more shovels, but you know, they're selling fewer barbecues, so. And I will gloat that my recommendation in, I believe it was Stocks 2010, the Motley Fool Special Report, Compass Minerals, CMP is the ticker, is up about 13%. They make rock salt. So, so that's probably one of the few companies that's actually doing pretty well. Yeah. And uh, folks might want to have a look at natural gas, either uh, via the ETF that tracks the futures of natural gas or a, a company like Chesapeake, although I know Seth is not a, a massive fan of uh, Chesapeake, owing to the Just compensation Just because the CEO plan. had the company buy his art <laughs> when he went broke. No big deal. Because <laughs> you know what? It was it was, uh, it was was pretty cold, uh, in addition to being pretty snowy. And uh, we, we uh, turned up the heat, as a matter of fact. And uh, that's got to be good news for natural gas prices. All right, let's move on. Big problems for the European Union on Thursday. Thursday, EU leaders pledged to support Greece, which is running a huge budget deficit. James, let's kick it to you. What do Greece's problems mean for the EU, and what do they mean for us here in well, America? It's not good, Chris. Greece is kind of the, the California of the EU. Its, it's <laughs> borrowing costs have actually doubled in the past couple of months. That's a lot. Uh, the problem is simply overspending. I think, I think currently 30% of Greeks are employed by the Greek government. 
Now, for perspective, about 10 Tax years ago, Tax dodging is a big deal there, too, oh, though, yeah. right? So 40% of, of Washington, D.C. Uh, residents at one time were employed by the D.C. government. So, so D.C. has the edge there, but or had the edge. The, the key point, though, is metastasizing into what we're calling the club med countries, Spain, uh, Portugal, uh, well, just those two, I guess. Rather than <laughs> <laughs> and and it's Italy. sort of testing the depths of this European socialism. But yeah, France and, and Germany and others are, are backing back in Greece. And I think the, the takeaways for investors are get out of French, Swiss, and German banks in that order. They have exposure to, to Greek loans. And consider a trip to Europe. Your dollar's going to go a lot further. Seth, you like to travel over to Europe. Yeah, I'm actually considering a trip to Italy. And, uh, you know, I'm always looking at Spanish real estate as that, as that, <laughs> as that bubble pops. But I was just looking at the... Uh, the uh, GDP numbers that came out in the EU, and it ain't so great. Right now, the uh, only economy that crawled ahead in the fourth quarter was the French, and that was because they had their own sort of cash poor clunkers uh, program. <laughs> and uh, Italy kind of double dipped down, so did Spain, so uh, Germany stagnated. This ain't good. Yeah, I think I think that uh, what happened in Germany is is quite important for the U.S. economy as well in, t- in terms of a, a warning sign. You know, we've talked in the past on the show uh, about uh, inventory bounce, and we've we've had that. We had pretty dramatic uh, GDP growth a couple of quarters back as manufacturers uh, replenished depleted shelves, and that's exactly what happened in Germany. Germany is uh, developed Europe's manufacturing economy, and it was tepid in terms of its GDP growth this time around too. Google wants you to have more fiber. On Wednesday, the company announced plans to build and test ultra-high-speed broadband networks in a number of locations across the U.S. The network will be open access, meaning other service providers can take advantage of Google's infrastructure. Guys, this ain't going to be cheap, so what's in it for Google? Oh, this is an excellent uh, publicity stunt slash pressure tactic. The reason it's interesting is Google, is Google saying, hey, we're going to build this expensive thing. By the way, they haven't said what it's going to cost. They have no idea. They haven't pledged any capital towards it. But it, I believe what they're trying to do is to force, the, one, the government's hands and then the telecom's hands into building higher speed uh, broadband networks because, of course, Google stands to gain the most of probably any company if we get faster and faster data speeds. So if Google builds, for whatever cost, a small broadband network that's much faster and can therefore convince the government, perhaps, to throw money at it or convince the other telecoms to do that, then in the end, Google has made the small capital investment in a few places but can reap the rewards from a nationwide network that will be much more robust. So this is genius for them uh, if it works. James? Yeah, Chris, South Korea has uh, internet connections about eight times faster than we do. We actually used to be the world leader in broadband, and now we're one of the, the slower developed countries. And that goes back to Michael Powell, Colin Powell's son, running the FCC about 10 years ago. He decided to classify internet connectivity as basically an information service as opposed to a telecom. And what that did was not mandate the incumbent line owners to, to let other uh, companies use their lines as, as we have with telecoms and as most of the rest of the world has with broadband. So we actually have slower broadband now because of that. Google, just like Seth said, is timing this perfectly. I don't think they're really trying to become an actual sort of telecom uh, fiber optics provider. No, their margins would go down Yeah, this, the is, this is basic. I mean, they do lead in, they have a huge, they basically rule the, the online video market, if you look at the market share for that. So they have an incentive, but they really wanted to kind of nudge uh, development, I think, politically and, and, and economically uh, in this direction. All right, coming up, we'll dig into one of the biggest rivalries in the world. That's right, it's Coke versus Pepsi. That and more. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zerman. Okay, guys, time for some quick takes. U.S. retailers reported stronger than expected sales in January. Sales in November and December were revised higher as well. Seth, total retail sales, excluding gasoline, were up half a percent. So, uh, time to pop the champagne? Whoopee! <laughs> yeah, well, I'm looking at a nice chart here uh, from the excellent blog, uh, Calculated Risk, which shows retail sales without gasoline, uh, which is very, very volatile and represents a pretty large chunk. So you look at the red line here, and if you look at the level where we are now, and then you draw a line backwards, you see that we are back to sort of uh, 05, 06 levels of retail spending when you don't consider gasoline. There's actually some pretty interesting data if you go to the Commerce Department's report, download it like the nerds we are, and take a look at the numbers. You can see that the good news, if this is good news, is not shared across all retailers because furniture, uh, electronics, and appliance stores are actually seeing still pretty significant drops from last year at this level down in the uh, electronics and appliance stores, down uh, 7% year over year. I mean, last year was pretty lousy, and this year is not much better. Gasoline stations up 29%. Non-store retailers, interestingly enough, up 12%. So if you're an investor, download the whole report and see where the money's <laughs> going because it's it's not evenly spread. Now, when you say non-store retailers, is that just online retailers like Amazon? That's all that kinds of thing. I guess, you know, your infomercials, every, people are sitting at home looking at small glowing rectangles and doing yeah, buying, like infomercials. <laughs> home shopping. <laughs> Don't knock it. Uh, well, Seth's point uh, about the, the weak uh, comparisons to this time last year for some segments of the economy, that's uh, tremendously bad news because remember where we were this time last year. And so in the same way that we've discussed in the past that you know the the earnings reports uh, need to be taken not with a grain but with a block of salt because they're coming against very easy comparables. Well, uh, when retail sales numbers look weak against very easy comps, that's uh, that's not good news. And, and I'm a contrarian on all of this. I mean, the whole reason we're so into retail sales and is because consumer spending is about two thirds of our GDP. Ergo, it makes sense to try to boost consumer spending if we want to boost our economy. But I question that. I don't know that we want to be just a nation of consumers. I think two thirds of our GDP is is too high. You know, we're becoming sort of the the Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero, I guess, uh, as a country. We're cool, but but not a lot of substance. Well, leave so it mean to California. Jeez, and I like geez. Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. Let me. I mean, the show, <laughs> not the, not the actual. Leave well. it to James to take to take the long view. So so yeah. I agree, and it's, it's even higher than two thirds of the yeah, economy now. But we're, what are we going to do? You know, we're not a manufacturing economy anymore, and I don't think that we really are going to be able to revert back to to that. So we're we're a service economy. That's a low-wage uh, economy. So what what are we going to do to replace consumer spending? It's it's uh, it's a tough road ahead. Yeah. Green power. Yeah. Green power. <laughs> and if I can throw in one more bit, uh, it, it won't be turning soon, at least according to a consumer sentiment report that came out on Friday, which showed, guess what? A surprise drop in uh, consumer sentiment in February, dropping from 74.4 in January to 73.7 in February. Ben Bernanke playing coy with the financial markets this week. The Fed chief hinted that the Fed might tighten credit, quote, at some point. <laughs> Shannon, what is he up to? Uh, ben Bernanke, a master of the obvious. <laughs> so, so basically, he used his opportunity for congressional testimony to read from the Fed's standard operating procedure. Well, if inflation rears its ugly head, we will do something about that. We will make it even harder for people to get the credit that they apparently don't want anyway. Banks at historic uh, reserves are historic highs. Uh, consumers and businesses deleveraging. And oh, here's what we're going to do when the, you know, that credit gets too loose. Well, so what is that? But uh, my favorite phrase, political theater. And 
I, but I think that there is real harm in that, as I did uh, uh, Obama's mention of deficit reduction during the State of the Union. That's the easy political thing to say. The harder thing is to prepare people for the fact that, well, depending on how the economy goes, and we still are near double-digit unemployment, it may be necessary for the government to be the stimulator of, uh, of first resort when consumers aren't spending in an economy that's powered to the tune of almost 70 percent uh, by, by consumer spending. They did not well, lay that groundwork. Yeah. In fact, they head faked in the opposite direction. It's going to make that uh, choice much more difficult if they have to make it on down yeah, the road. Yeah, but they have to sort of, they have to throw a bone to the crusty types out there who are still Because that, makes, still them, that makes them very serious. They're very, oh, we're still well. worried that we're going to have inflation even though we're in this deflationary Exactly, uh, exactly. Deflationary we, spiral, I'm a crusty so. type guy. Well, for, I, I think there are three takeaways here. First, what's going to happen to the banks in real estate as the stimulus goes away? Just logistically, because these were stim- stimulated basically by both monetary policy, which is Fed setting rates, and fiscal policy, which is a treasury and, and a tax and spending, basically. Um, moreover, the biggest thing, though, is, is what about the U.S.? The Congressional Budget Office estimates that by 2015, the U.S. national debt will be twice its 2008 lo- level. And that's 2008 was not a low level. So either two things happen. One, we don't have inflation, and rates go up, reverting to, to a more normal uh, position, I guess, and that means the U.S. might struggle to make its interest payments, or we have to inflate, and and that there goes our currency. So I am a little bit worried about our debt. I got to say, no, well, as am I. But that, that's a long run problem, and uh, I, I may have said it last week. I'll say it again. Uh, you don't worry about your house's foundation when the thing is on fire. The house may still be on fire. Google launched Google Buzz this week. It's a social media aggregation thingy. Uh, obviously aimed at taking on Facebook. <laughs> Shannon, you, you... Thank you, Grandpa. <laughs> oh, these kids with their new, interweb. New <laughs> it's all a series of tubes. I don't know. Didn't I, I vote for you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shannon, you, you got an evite or an uh, invite to invite. Google Buzz. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so on Monday, and apparently the status line... You're the cool kid of, at the table. Yeah, well, I'm still looking for my invite to Google Voice, and that's not been forthcoming, Google. Uh, yeah, so I got an invite on Monday, and it was uh, invite only for one day. And so there's been a big hue and cry, I guess rightfully so, over the what CNET is called the privacy nightmare uh, of Buzz. But I think that different people are having different kinds of experiences. If you read the, the privacy statement of Buzz, though, it is quite uh, frightening. It says that by default, we may automatically opt you into following uh, people who you email most frequently with. So uh, wives, uh, mistresses crazy ex-girlfriends, uh, who knows, maybe Chinese uh, uh, dissidents. And if you're you yeah. know, someone who's living in the U.S. using Google uh, th- and you opt into the Buzz social network, uh, which is Google's attempt to be uh, in, in the mix with Facebook, uh, then you may have some some exposure concerns because all of the people that you follow and all the people who follow you are going to be available on your publicly searchable uh, Google profile. Are that's we not just good. old, though? I mean, isn't privacy a thing of the past? Do the kids really care about that? Yeah, isn't that's, the whole that's point not to have privacy? Again? That's, that's the so, yeah. privacy's this, passe. This that's is a Google's weird position. mash between Twitter and Facebook. I, I have a hard... Everyone's got a Gmail account. I really I really wonder if they're going to going to just sign up for this and use that as their new Facebook. I, I don't see this going anywhere. I see this being about as important as, uh, oh, I don't know, Second life, but you can, you, you, you can see <laughs> how um, it could be appealing, right? So you don't have to do anything extra. You're not signing up for a Facebook account or a Twitter account. Yeah, what are the yeah. social? It's a, here's your contacts list. No, suddenly you're in contact with uh, your ex mother-in-law. That's, yeah, it is a little creepy. But Facebook is just one of those things that's popular because it's popular. So it'll be really hard to to put a dent in that. What do you mean it's popular because it's popular? You're on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, and only because everybody about else told me I like, had to be on there. You know, like, oh, yeah, we're, we're too lazy to go to the blog where you actually have decent pictures and <laughs> stuff. So go on Facebook where the picture quality is lousy and you get stalked by weirdos and, and everything else. So 
It's nice to know hey, you. I apologize for that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, finally, Coca-Cola and Pepsi both reported earnings this week. Coke matched expectations. Pepsi fell slightly below. James, you're following both of these companies. Break it down for us. Sure. You know, I was skeptical of Pepsi's decision to buy their bottlers back. Basically, the, the soft drink companies have owned their bottlers and not owned, owned again over the years. You know, they can't really decide. Bar- bottling is a low-margin business, but it seems to have helped uh, increase Pepsi's uh, quarterly profits. The beverage volume is down. A lot of people don't know that Pepsi actually makes more money from snack food, junk food, basically, than they do from their beverages. North American beverages are not really good at all. It's a flat to declining market, even. But international food really saves Pepsi's bacon or whatever you want to call it, uh, the <laughs> bacon quarter. And even in spite of rising commodity costs, gross margins were up 115 basis points, which is 1.15%. So I like it. Yeah, well, so the, the, the problem for Coke, and I think Pepsi is the, the, the better company, uh, c- for one problem for Coke is that sugar is the new gold. It's currently priced at nearly twice its normal cost, and so uh, Coke is having a sugar high in all the wrong ways right now. And the other problem is that unlike Pepsi, Coke does not have a uh, salt division to, to pick up the slack. So results were okay. Revenue up about 4%, and that factors in the currency uh, uh, favorability. So, you know, that's a, a bit of a, a, a wash there, I think. And profits were squeezed during the quarter, in part because of rising commodity costs. I do think that Pepsi's the better company. I looked at the 10-year record for Coke. It's uh, uh, produced over the last 10 years an annualized gain of not more than uh, or roughly 1%. So if you're considering Coke, and you think that that's probably what the future looks like too, consider uh, laddering CDs over that period of time instead. All right. Desert Island, you got to bring a case with you. Is it Coke? Is it Pepsi? Is it Mr. Pibb? What are you taking? Uh, Bell's Pale Ale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you guys know me. I'm an eco guy. The only thing I drink are these, like, spirulina green powder drinks. But when I did drink soda, I, I liked Pepsi much better. Shannon? Verner's. What is Verner's? So, so Ver- maybe it was a Florida-only thing. I don't know. But it's a, it's a kind of ginger ale, but it's a little spicier than, than Canada Dry ginger ale. It's good. I, I, but you know what? It's not cheer wine. No, it's not. Uh, Tahitian Treat also might go for that. Tahitian Treat, Tahitian anyone? Tahitian Treat is really, yeah. That, it's ba- Tahitian Treat is about 90% sugar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually, 10% the red stuff. stuff. I actually think you're making up Verner's. So uh, w- drop I, us an email, motleyfoolmoney at fool.com. <laughs> I want proof outside of Shannon Come on, Verner's fans, help me out here. Verner's exists. We also want to know your take on Snowpocalypse and any advice you have for Greece and the EU. Just drop us an email, motleyfoolmoney at fool.com. The guys will be back later to talk about the stocks that are on their radar. But coming up after the break, economist Simon Johnson will help us make sense of Chinese banks, the EU's challenges, and why the biggest threat to America's economy may be right here at home. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, and we want to talk a little bit more about the problems with the EU. Simon Johnson is an MIT professor, a former chief economist for the IMF, and co-founder of the popular economics website, BaselineScenario.com. He's also the co-author of the upcoming book, 13 Bankers, The Wall Street Takeover and the Next Financial Meltdown. Simon, welcome to Motley Fool Money. Nice to be with you. We're hearing a lot, obviously, about the snow and its effect on businesses and government. Uh, from your perspective, um, is is there any... Ec- economic benefit to the, all of this snow? Mm, well, not really. Not in a macroeconomic sense. I think it, it moves shopping around a bit. It changes when people do things. Although, as long as people kept power, as far as I could see, a lot of people were working right through the snowstorm. It does uh, perhaps redistribute income a little bit from people who own property and sidewalk uh, to people uh, who uh, can wield shovels. 
and that's probably a good thing. But, but I don't think it's a big deal overall. So one of the things we're also hearing a lot about lately is the phrase sovereign debt crisis. For the benefit of those who aren't familiar with it, what is it and how is it relevant to the average investor? Well, sovereign debt is uh, the money that's owed by governments, government debt. Um, some of that, of course, in all cases is owed to your own people. Some of it is owed to foreigners. Um, and a, a debt crisis is when people start to worry that you may not be able to pay back some or all of that debt. And of course, what we're looking at right now is a problem in the Eurozone, starting with Greece, but maybe also Portugal and, and Spain are in the line of fire. And most of the debts in euros, most of it's owed to people in and around the Eurozone, not necessarily by Greece to Greeks, but other members of the Eurozone. And there's a lot of worry that they may not be able to pay. From your perspective, what went wrong in Greece? Uh, well, when they joined the Eurozone, actually when they joined the European Union uh, much much longer ago, they promised to do a lot of structural reforms. They promised to make their economy, if you like, more modern, more similar to those other economies they've now locked in uh, with in terms of the exchange rate. And they haven't done it. Uh, they, they also, ma you know, <laughs> managed <laughs> creatively some of their numbers to make themselves look better and so on. So, so now there's, there's a reckoning. Now uh, you realize, uh, everyone realizes that they're deficit is unsustainable. They need to make some big uh, fiscal adjustment is the term, but it really means budget cuts and raising taxes. Um, and of course, that's not never popular with your people. If they get the right kind of support from the outside, from other countries, then maybe they can do it over a period of, say, five years. If they don't get that support, they're probably going to do it very quickly, maybe five months. And that's even more painful. Is that what they're going to have to do? And, and is that what other countries in the EU are going to have to do? Because it seems like uh, just to, to the average person, and I'll just throw myself in that camp, I look at the EU and I see a lot of different countries with very different economic models and makeups and, and economies of scale, and it just seems like a huge challenge. How, how do they make that work? Well, it, it, it is difficult. Uh, it, you know, it's obviously more variation within the European Union than there is currently within the United States, although historically the U.S. had a lot of regional variation. Um, I think most of the European models are more or less uh, functioning okay, and mostly the process of European integration has gone pretty well. The problem is that when they brought in some of these uh, Mediterranean uh, countries, particularly Greece, but also Portugal, and maybe, maybe even we'll start thinking of Spain in these terms, um, they really stretched it a bit too far, so that the other countries are similar enough. And France, by the way, has changed a lot. France, um, you should abandon all your stereotypes and, and go check it out. All of them? I have to abandon all my stereotypes well, about France? Well, perhaps, perhaps not the ones about the obnoxious waiters. But, <laughs> but, the, uh, but in terms of their productivity levels, in terms of their management of public finance and so on, they have become much more Germanic than you would think. But the, it's the Southern Europeans who really struggled. The Italians, I think, are, are going to make it. They, they've actually done pension reform. Um, which is a very good thing at this point. The other countries are, are no, no doubt about it, in trouble this time around. You've said that Europe risks another global depression. Is there a country in the EU that we should be looking at as sort of a bellwether to gauge the economic health of the EU? Absolutely. Look at Germany. Germany is really the heavyweight. It's, it's German attitudes that are going to determine whether or not Southern Europe gets helped. Germany could do uh, with a bit more fiscal expansion itself, by the way. They run a fairly contractionary tight policy. That's not terribly good for their neighbors. They're also very export dependent. So if they can't sell to their neighbors, if they can't sell internationally, uh, you're going to see bad numbers. And the latest data we have for the fourth quarter uh, suggests the German economy is really, is really sputtering. 
they, they're not going to collapse. They're quite resilient, obviously, but as a, as a bellwether, as an indication of what's going on and who's leading and, 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 and whether Europe is leading. Look at Germany. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, and we're talking with Simon Johnson, professor, economist, author, and co-founder of the website BaselineScenario.com. Let's bring it a little closer to home here. In addition to global problems, you've identified a number of problems for the U.S. economy, a soft housing market, uh, a debt overhang for lower-income households. Uh, is there good news for the U.S. economy in 2010? Um, well, the good news is if we don't fall off another cliff, um, <laughs> honestly, I, I think that um, we, we have a lot, of, a lot of issues to deal with. You didn't mention the too-big-to-fail banks, which you know, perhaps are not foremost on people's minds right now, but they're going to lead to trouble. I mean, we've got these massive banks where they, the people who run them are convinced, with some reason, that if things go well, they'll get the upside, and if things go badly, that's my problem and your problem, not their problem. Uh, that always ends in tears in every country we, we've ever seen that. So, uh, yeah, I think 2010 is going to be rocky for the U.S. Obviously, we're still in a recovery phase. The recovery should have been going faster. We should have been bringing jobs back quicker. Um, and, and now I fear the effect of the Eurozone, the effects of this kind of domestic issues that you mentioned a moment ago, um, and, and some of the banking sector problems, commercial real estate going bad, hurts a lot of small and medium-sized banks. This may mean a, a slowdown in the second half, not a double-dip recession. I don't think output will actually contract. But I think the recovery, which is not going fast, will lose speed. Well, let's stick with the banks, because President Obama has taken some heat for not being tough enough on the bailed-out banks. He uh, made the comment uh, earlier this week, I believe it was, about uh, the bonuses being paid out and how he didn't begrudge those. Um, but you've said that the financial industry has effectively captured our government. What should the president be doing that he's not? He should be uh, toughening the policies and the attitude towards the biggest biggest banks. There was, of course, a move in this direction when he announced the so-called Volcker rules in, in, in late January. I think those rules have the right ideas behind them. Don't let the big banks stay big and don't let them take crazy risks. But unfortunately, the way that they're sort of coming together in, in legislation, the way the detailed tactical people in the administration are taking those forward, that they're pretty, they're going after a pretty weak um, version of those rules. And in addition, the big banks are digging in. They um, are really uh, quite adamant that they don't want any such restrictions. They're very powerful. They have a lot of money, and their their ideological position, that their their sort of the intellectual capture that they've managed on Capitol Hill and and, and throughout the administration is is quite quite complete and actually. Actually, shocking uh, when, 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 you, when you see it uh, up close. Um, that's going to take quite a while to break. If President Obama is going to get tougher with the big banks, is Tim Geithner the right man to help with that job, or does he need someone more like Paul Volcker? Well, I have no problem with Tim Geithner uh, as long as he changes his policies. I think the people, <laughs> the people are fine. The people are professionals, and they need a different uh, direction from the top, and then, then, they'll, then they'll do the job. Um, so I think Volcker's... Uh, ascension or reascension to power, or at least they brought him out of the basement. Uh, that was great. Uh, Volcker is exactly the, he's exactly the kind of guy you want with the vision and, and the steel, and the bankers are afraid of Volcker, okay? Uh, they're not afraid of pretty much anyone else at this stage. Uh, how much role he'll have and whether they'll truly take a tough version of, 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 his, of his vision and implement it, that remains to be seen. Well, I'm biased because I like my Treasury secretaries to be old and grizzled, and so, through no fault of his own, Tim Geithner kind of just strikes me as, as the kid at the grown-ups table. 
And uh, it certainly doesn't hurt that in addition to being old and grizzled, Paul Volcker is, I think, six foot seven. So in terms of striking fear in the hearts of the banks, that, that, that probably helps. And I'm sure, I'm sure it helps to tower over everybody. Uh, China just ordered banks to raise reserve ratios. What does that mean for us here in the U.S.? Well, I mean, China wants to slow down a bit. That, you know, may not be crazy from their perspective. Their economy is growing pretty fast. The big issue for us, of course, is their exchange rate. And, and, and this move on the reserve uh, requirements does, doesn't affect their exchange rate, doesn't push it towards appreciating, which is what we and everybody else needs. Uh, they're actually cheating, to be honest. They're cheating on their, on their exchange rate. They're cheating. It's a form of cheating on trade policy. But there's a massive loophole in the international rules. Uh, the World Trade Organization doesn't deal with that, and the International Monetary Fund has not been able to deal with it. So the Chinese will get away with it for quite, quite a while longer, and, and, and that's, that's not helpful. And, and so when you say that they're cheating, who's supposed to call them on that and, inf- and enforce rules to make sure that they don't? Is it the IMF? Yes, it is the IMF. And there was an attempt over the past few years to beef up the ability of the IMF to, to make that call and to do something about it. But to be honest, it's failed. It's failed kind of ignominiously. It failed as the crisis broke, and so it kind of got hidden in that, in that dust. But now, as things begin to stabilize, uh, China's exchange rate becomes more of an issue again, and, and the, the, the failure of the IMF in this space is, is you know, something unfortunate. We need to recognize it. I, I, I mean, I'm not suggesting we, we, we stand around screaming and shouting about it. We just need to move on. I think we need to change the rules so the World Trade Organization can deal with this kind of unfair trade subsidy. So what is a greater potential threat to our economy and to investors in the U.S.? Is it China, or is it the EU and, and the current crisis they're dealing with? Oh, it's our banks. <laughs> None <laughs> of the above. You see, if, it, if our banks were in good shape, if they had plenty of capital, if they behaved responsibly uh, and had decent incentives, I would say we can withstand the Eurozone shocks. We're a big economy. We're a quarter of the world economy by ourselves. And, and the Chinese exchange rate, you know, it would be, it would be, a, would be a side issue. But I think with, with the financial system, uh, uh, the nature of the one that we have, uh, we are heading for serious instability. Now, I'm not saying we go down. I'm not saying we even stay flat. I'm saying we go up and down a lot. And every time we come down, there's a big cost for the taxpayer. There's a big cost in terms of lost jobs. There is a lot more inequality in the United States. That's absolutely what you're going to see as a part of this cycle. You know, rich people who do well in the financial sector are going to be pretty happy with this arrangement. And uh, everyone else is going to get increasingly hammered. The middle class is going to get beaten down. I I would suggest, with all due respect to Mexico, we're going to become a lot more like Mexico. Um, In what way? Uh, More inequality, more people who are trodden down at the lower end of the income scale. I would guess it comes with more crime. I would guess it comes with a lot more resentment. Probably comes with more extreme populist politics, by the way. But the elite manages themselves through this quite well. Of course, they all go... In Mexico, they have second. They have second houses in, in Miami. I'm not sure where the U.S. elite will have its uh, retreats. Probably somewhere like New Zealand. Your next book is Thirteen Bankers: The Wall Street Takeover and the Next Financial Meltdown, uh, and it comes out March 30th. Uh, but give us a sneak preview. Uh, what is the next financial meltdown? Uh, because it, it sounds like you're you're painting a, a picture right now with your description of how we're getting closer to being more like Mexico. Yes, oh, actually, we've been talking about the key themes uh, in the book. Um, really, it's about uh, the kind of financial system we have today, how it, where it came from, and how it changed as a result of the, the crisis and the bailout. And our argument is it's, it's more dangerous uh, now, actually, than it's ever been, which, which, is, which I understand is, is, a, is a, shy, a striking, shocking um, point. Um, 
and and we you know we should I'd like to come back if if you're willing and we can talk about all the details when the book's out. We'd love to have uh, you back because it's it's a heck of a story and and you wouldn't believe it if it weren't right there in front of you. The book is Thirteen Bankers: The Wall Street Takeover and the Next Financial Meltdown. It comes out March 30th, but you can pre-order it on Amazon now and check it out because it is getting a ton of praise already. Simon Johnson, we'd love to have you back in April when your book is out. But thanks for being here. My pleasure. My name is Tom Cranker, and I'm a jolly banker. I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker am I. I safeguard the farmers and widows and orphans, singing I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker am I. Coming up next, it's the stocks that are on our radar. You won't want to miss it. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, and back in the studio with me, our trio of senior analysts, Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zirin. Uh, guys, we got a little bit of time, so uh, Seth, uh, would love for you to explain an email you sent earlier this week uh, with all the snow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> if I start explaining email in here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing nothing but. Well, you know, with all the snow uh, we've had, our producer Matt Greer wanted to know if you're going to be able to get to the studio, and your response was, and I quote, I should be in early morning. I was able to get out today. That was the most pantyhose I've ever bought sober. Well, I've got a little ice dam situation on my house, and one of the fixes you can supposedly use for this is you buy some pantyhose, you buy some some ice uh, melter, not not salt. You need the special kind, yep. uh, calcium something, and you pour it in so you get these kind of stretchy loggy things. And then so then I'm leaning out my windows. I actually cut my hands on icicles, and you're kind of flipping them up, trying to get them across the ice dams. The theory being that they will kind of cut melt a groove through the ice dam so that the meltwater will go out through that groove instead of coming into your roof, uh, up your shingles, and then down your walls and wrecking your house. I'm sorry to report it doesn't really seem to have helped a whole lot, uh, but the guy at the uh, CVS did wonder why I bought 12 pairs of black pantyhose. Yeah, I was going to say, I- I'm guessing you got some looks. Yeah, <laughs> I do look pretty good in black pantyhose, but... All righty, let's move on. Guys, uh, let's go around the table. One stock that is on your radar. Shannon Zimmerman, we'll start with you. Well, you know, it's it's a, a tough time. I'm trying to connect the dots between a couple of themes. This notion that we talked about in the past that, uh, you know, in, in a flat to down market, dividend paying stocks look especially attractive because they're not going to be, their, their gains are not going to be based just on price appreciation, but on the income that they throw off. And thinking that since healthcare reform seems to have collapsed, uh, that it might be good to look in the healthcare sector for, you know, strong dividend payers. So I'm looking at Bristol. Myers Squibb, a projected yield of about 5.4. That's uh, that's pretty good. Pretty solid, yeah. But you know, no, no growth prospects to speak of. Kind of a weak pipeline. Valuation is okay. So I'm doing some more work on it. But that's the best that I can come up with right now. Ticker symbol uh, B M Y. James Early. Chris, I have another dividend stock. It's Constellation Energy. This yields only 2.8%. You might remember this. This is the, the one that Warren Buffett's mid-American energy tried to buy a few years ago, and they ended up just selling a, a small portion of their nuclear assets to, to EDF, Electricity to France, instead. Um, Constellation is a utility. It owns Baltimore Gas and Electric, but that's a small part of its business. It's mostly a merchant power generator, meaning it takes the risk of generating power to sell it on the open market. If power is highly priced, they'll make a lot of money. If power is not, they won't. That's why it's great if it's a nuclear company. Nuclear is very cheap power, so it's made a lot of money doing this, but it's a riskier company. Anyhow, 
if you think that the U.S. is going to see uh, rising industrial activity, more power usage, Constellation could be a great bet. The ticker is CEG. Seth Jason? If, if these guys are going to consider uh, all these nice, stodgy dividend-paying <laughs> stocks, I'm going to have to go with some old-school, no-dividend craziness. Uh, I was, it's eBay. eBay is on my radar because I see that they were fined by a Paris court this week uh, for uh, buying keywords, misspelled keywords, so that they would steer people to their website uh, who are looking for Louis Vuitton products. And, of course, the French really hate that kind of thing. So eBay is up in arms there. One of their European directors uh, claimed that, that uh, this ruling just shows Louis Vuitton trying to harm eBay's reputation, that, that, that this settlement was way out of line. But it was $275,000, according to the article I've got here. I mean, that, that's pocket, that's nothing to eBay. I mean, they can blow that on a Scandinavian uh, phone startup in, in two <laughs> seconds, in, in literally two seconds, probably. The, the reason it's on my radar is that if you look at it, it looks like it's trading at somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 10 times a normalized cash, free cash flow or so, which isn't exactly cheap, but it's not exactly pricey if you believe eBay is going to fix the sort of top line revenue malaise and keep going forward. So it's really not on my buy list at this moment, but I'm definitely interested in keeping an eye on it because uh, if they do things right, it should be a cheap business to keep running. Yeah, it's, and eBay is, is quite interesting to me to a couple, for a couple of reasons too. There's the PayPal piece, which has been a phenomenal acquisition, unlike Skype, and they, they shook Skype off, and so that was good. And then the apping of, of eBay too, the fact that uh, folks can have uh, uh, PayPal on their uh, websites that are independent of, of uh, eBay, uh, a good development for that company. I don't think that they've seen all of the growth out of that yet that they're going to see. Uh, just in the minute we have left, we've got Valentine's Day coming up. Uh, we're all married. Yes. And we've all suffered a lot of snow. So the question is, to what extent do you think we can use the snow as an excuse to get out of buying a Valentine's Day present for our respective wives? To, to, to no extent at all. Although I have to say <laughs> that I, did, I got a call from my wife earlier today who reports that my daughter, my older daughter, has made a card for me. Mom, what, what does Dad like? Dad likes a guitar. So she drew, drew something that apparently looks nothing like a guitar, but I'm supposed to act as though, oh, wow, that's my guitar. Oh, you got nice. the Warning, James. Well, thank you for reminding me. Reminding me first off, <laughs> <laughs> I, I did get flowers today at, at, the, at the market, um, but but I, I still have to get on the ball. Seth, you think any chance? Yeah, you know, no matter how much snow falls, I still don't have any excuse if I fail to stop at the gas station and buy the uh, chocolates and that rose near the checkout counter and so, the beef jerky so, and some exactly. pantyhose. <laughs> so yeah, Seth, Jason, James, Early, Shannon, Zimmerman. guys, thanks for being here. Sure thing, Chris. Chris. Want to thank our special guest this week, Simon Johnson. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at our website, MotleyFoolMoney.com. You can also get a copy of our free report, The Motley Fool's Top Stock for 2010. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>